The legends are true. But overwhelming power! The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Wickdonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece Nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at Wickdonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. As we deep dive into these chilling tales, We all need a moment of escape, a way to unwind without the shadow of the night creeping in. Here's where Recess Mood comes in. Crafted with real fruit and infused with mood-lifting magnesium and stress-balancing aptogens, Recess Mood is your guilt-free retreat. With just 20 calories, no added sugar, it's not just a sparkling water, it's a sanctuary and a can. Imagine unwinding during a gripping episode of Foul Play with a can of strawberry rose, or my favorite, raspberry lemon, letting the stress melt away without the aftermath of alcohol. It's my little secret to staying balanced in the chaos of a busy life. You deserve a healthier way to unwind, to recharge, and to prepare for the next journey into the unknown with Foul Play. And for the devoted Foul Play listeners, you deserve a healthier way to unwind. Head to takearecess.com slash Shane to get 15% off Recess Mood, your go-to alcohol replacement. Hello friend, before we get into the final episode of Lizzie Borden, I wanted to take the time to thank Carrie Mimics 4 for her iTunes review. Hey Carrie, I'm glad you love the podcast. I know you could be anywhere right now, but I'm glad you're here. Divine Misty only left 2 out of 5 stars, feeling like the episodes were too short, and said the 3 parts on Lizzie didn't provide enough information. I'm working on longer episodes now. My aim is for around 20 minutes for each episode. You wouldn't know this by listening, but I actually grew up with a bad stuttering problem, and when I record, it tends to come out. I will trip up on a word and have to keep re-recording those lines over and over again. So although you may get a 10-minute episode, it takes a very long time for me to record it, not to mention edit or write, research, or investigate the case. But stick with me. You will notice longer episodes soon. For the rest of you listening, I'd love to hear your feedback, even if it's just where you're listening from, how long you've been listening, or how you found me. You can leave that feedback to me on Apple Podcasts. Now, let's get into the season finale of Lizzie Borden. Welcome, listener, 
to the fifth and final episode in the series, where I'm talking about Lizzie Borden and the murders she committed, allegedly. In the last four episodes, we've explored the case and looked at several different angles, but the court proceedings revealed one shocking detail that shifted the focus away from Lizzie and towards something, perhaps greater. It began with assumptions and circumstantial evidence. Prosecutors pinned the murders on Lizzie, stating a woman's natural cunning slyness as justification, which the jury wouldn't accept as actual evidence. The acquittal was noteworthy because it symbolized the victory of the rule of law over personal prejudice. But why did it happen? Why would anybody even think that Lizzie, a Sunday school teacher and active member of the Christian Endeavor Society, the Woman's Christian Temperance Union, and the Ladies' Fruit and Flower Mission would have any malice or rage in her heart to kill two people. Well, it could have a lot to do with the police interrogation. The truth is, police interrogation tactics in the 20th century, particularly those used on a murder suspect, were often insensitive to the impact of trauma on a person's responses. It is difficult to tell if Fall River Mayor John Coughlin was right in ordering Lizzie's arrest based on their inquiry and her conflicting answers. Lizzie's replies were just as perplexing when the local coroner conducted a formal inquiry. It's possible that she was flustered, even traumatized, and could barely compose herself. Her reactions and tics, however, might have been seen as signs of guilt. So Lizzie was accused of the murders of her father and stepmother. The police felt Lizzie's motivation was either strong anger related to her biological mother's death or a desire to acquire her father's money. They didn't attempt to incriminate Lizzie's older sister, despite the fact that Emma Borden would have had the same motivations. On June 5, 1893, the state of Massachusetts started Lizzie Borden's trial. The trial was ruled over by Judges Caleb Blodgett, Justin Dewey, and Albert Mason, with Hosey Knowlton and William H. Moody acting as prosecutors. Lizzie was represented by Andrew Jennings and George D. Robinson, and the former was a well-known attorney who served previously as governor of Massachusetts. Moody began the prosecution's case by telling the jury the facts and prepared them to accept that a woman might have committed such heinous crimes. The following is a direct statement of what Moody said during the trial. On August 4th of last year, an old man and woman, husband and wife, each without a known enemy in the world, were killed by unlawful human agency in their own home. On a frequently visited street in the most populated state in this county, under the light of day and during its activities, today a lady of excellent social standing, of previously unquestioned integrity, a member of a Christian church and involved in good works, the own daughter of one of the deceased, stands before this court, accused of these crimes by the grand jury of this county. The prosecution's case was based heavily on circumstantial evidence. Moody, for example, highlighted that Emma Borden saw Lizzie burn an article of clothing after the killings. Moody implied that Lizzie had burned the bloodstained dress while murdering her parents, saying that the blood spatter patterns in the crime scene provided that some of the blood would have been on the assailant's clothes. So it's no wonder that Lizzie chose to burn her dress 
The prosecution then presented four axes and hatchets discovered in the Borden home. It was a brave move, since none of the tools actually had any bloodstains on them. The prosecution continued to assassinate Lizzie's character, leading Andrew Jennings, the Borden family's long-term attorney, to launch an attack against their reliance on circumstantial evidence. The court documents state they must either provide the weapon that executed the deed or account for its absence in some acceptable fashion. Direct evidence and indirect evidence are the two types of evidence. Persons who have seen, heard, or felt the object or things they are testifying provide direct evidence. It seems that from beginning to end, there is not a single piece of concrete proof against Lizzie Andrew Borden. There is no trace of blood, and no weapon is associated with her. Jennings and Robinson also refuted the prosecution's claim that Lizzie's dress burning implied guilt. They called Emma Borden to testify, and she told the court in Lizzie's favor that the clothing was extremely old, faded, damaged, and legitimately destroyed. And as we saw in previous episodes, it was how the family got rid of old things. Robinson went on to emphasize Lizzie and Andrew Borden's close relationship. Lizzie gave her father a ring many years ago to represent her love for her father. Robinson used this as evidence to show how improbable it was that Lizzie could murder her own father, stating, He was a man who wore no ornaments or jewelry except one ring, which belonged to Lizzie. It had been worn by the old man many years ago, when Lizzie was a tiny girl, and it is buried with him at the cemetery. And this tells us one thing for certain. Both father and daughter adored each other, and the ring stands as a guarantee of that. The defense rested its case after just two days. When it came time for the prosecutors to make their closing arguments, Knowlton and Moody were well aware of their main weakness, their reliance on circumstantial evidence. They purposefully asked the all-male jury to judge the case based on prevalent prejudices against women, stating, They compensate with cunning, dispatch, celerity, and fury. If they lack strength, coarseness, and vitality, if their loves are greater and more durable than men's, their hatreds are more uncompromising, implacable, and persistent. When he delivered the jury their instructions on the law and evidence in this case, Judge Dewey spoke for the three judges. To begin, he reaffirmed the defense's claim that the prosecutors relied on circumstantial evidence. Second, he discounted her contradictory statements to police following the killings as natural, given the circumstances. After persuasively challenging the prosecution's case, Judge Dewey reminded the jury members of their duty to Lizzie. The jury left the courtroom to consider on June 20, 1893. Perhaps the jury was influenced by Judge Dewey's instructions, or maybe the panel was sincerely convinced of her innocence. In either case, the jury returned to the courtroom with their judgment after just an hour of deliberation. Lizzie Borden was found not guilty of the murder counts. Lizzie moved out of the old Borden house when her trial was ended. There was nothing left for her in that house or in Fall River. Too many people believed she was guilty, and she could never lead a normal life in her hometown. Either that, or a terrible secret uncovered caused Lizzie 
to run away from the Borden house as fast as she could. In the early 1800s, Martha Petty Bowen and Richard Borden had a son they named Lodwick. Lodwick led a normal life, as normal a life as you could lead in the 1800s. He was quite the ladies' man, having gone through four marriages throughout his life. His second wife, Lizzie's great-aunt, Eliza Darling Borden, suffered from postpartum depression, and her disorder, or how it particularly manifested in her, has fascinated fans of the paranormal for decades. During those times, of course, mental health issues were unheard of, so any depression or mental disabilities you faced would have to be swept under the rug, especially if you are a woman. She bore Lodwick three children, Holder, Eliza Ann, and Maria. They weren't too far apart in age, which couldn't have given Eliza much time to recover. Many facts and stories have been lost in time, but one remains that Eliza, stricken with either grief or a fit of rage, murdered two out of three of her children by throwing them down the estate cellar cistern. She saved Maria at the last minute and slashed her own throat with Lodwick's razor that he kept on the second floor. This reveal in the courtroom became all the more reason to suspect Lizzie, who could have inherited the so-called madness and in grief or anger could have killed her loved ones. So, even though Lizzie was acquitted, the trial and the story of Eliza Borden, the mad great-aunt who killed her own children, would stick with her forever. It's no wonder she chose to leave. Perhaps it's truly a paranormal thing beyond our understanding. Maybe it runs in the family, or maybe it was someone else entirely. Someone Andrew would have wronged or cheated. The case is still an unsolved mystery, so your guesses are as good as mine. But this is all the information that's out there for now, and it brings me to the end of the Lizzie Borden murder series. As always, thanks for listening.